So excited that you're here. We're continuing on in our series in the Gospel according to Mark. And we've called this series the most important question ever asked. So uh, I'll get into that a little bit as we go. But if you've got a Bible, would you turn with me to the Gospel of Mark? It's one of the four Gospels written after the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus in order to give an account of his life. And one of the reasons uh, that John Mark, the author of Mark, wrote his gospel is because the apostles, those who had taught or learned from Jesus, walked with Jesus, seen the resurrected Jesus, they were beginning to get old. Uh, many had been persecuted and killed, and, uh, and they felt like we need to memorialize the accounts of the apostles, those who had been uh, specially charged to take the good news, the message of Jesus uh, to the ends of the earth. And so Mark compiles uh, what most scholars believe to be the teachings of the Apostle Peter for us in this gospel. And so we'll look at it together. Um, If you uh, don't have a Bible, you can Google Mark chapter 2. There's also Bibles in the seat back in front of you. If you don't own a Bible, take one of those with you tonight. That's just a gift from us to you. So, it is uh, exciting to walk through the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus together as a community. If you're new with us, uh, considering Jesus is one of the things that uh, we like to do together. We think it's what we were created to do. We think it's the most important thing that we can do is to spend time intentionally thinking about, talking about, uh, wrestling with questions about this Jesus of Nazareth. And Mark helps us to do that. He was helping both those who had never heard of Jesus, but actually more importantly, those who had already started to follow Jesus to continue to consider who was this man and is he worthy of the pain and the suffering uh, that was coming with following him at this time. So that's uh, just a little bit of the background of the book of Mark written to Roman Christians probably in the late 60s A.D. So, there you go. That's where we are. We're going to look at a story today. In that story, we're going to see an interesting dynamic. And it's the dynamic of the crowd versus the individual. And if you're anything like me, maybe you have a long history of hiding in the crowd. I've I've got a long history of that. Uh, Oftentimes, I, probably most often, prefer to be hidden in the crowd. And let's share a couple examples of that uh, in my own life. Um, I was the kind of guy who never asked questions in class. I, I preferred to just remain silent. I was a pretty good student. My teachers probably wondered why I never asked questions, uh, but I, I never, I mean, I don't even know if I can remember a time where I asked a question. I would prefer just not knowing <laughs> to having to raise my hand to be vulnerable to ask what might be seen as a dumb question. I also had a big decision uh, whether or not to go to a smaller school and play basketball uh, or give up on my basketball career and go to a big school. And it came down to the very end and almost went down to sunny California, to San Diego, to a school called Point Loma. And if anybody knows where that's at, it's a bad decision. I chose to go to UW, okay? No, UW's a great school, but it's huge. It's huge. At least ten times probably the size of Point Loma. And I think part of the reason that I made that decision was because I felt safer in a big crowd, that I could hide amongst the masses, both within my classes and just within the university. Now, if I'm really honest, the place that I tend to hide in the crowd most often is in the church or in Christian circles. This is just the history of my life. I mean, if you knew me back then, it would, it would really seem weird that I'm standing up here now. I seem sort of exposed, don't I? I seem sort of vulnerable. But back in the day, I would do everything to hide 
in the crowd. In fact, in college, there was a big college ministry at UW called The Inn, and if anybody uh, have been there, there's, there's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's in a gym, and, and on the gym you can sit on the floor, and lots of people sit on the floor, but kind of back behind all this floor seating, sort of in the shadows, is a few rows of chairs. And I would always walk in late, and I'd always go sit in the back row in those shadowy chairs. And then I'd get up and leave without talking to anybody. I loved the shadowlands of the inn, and as I graduated and went off and was looking for a church, I, f- I found myself in big churches. There's a number of reasons why I found myself there. Uh, they were great churches. That's why they had become big, and I think I liked it because I could hide in crowds. And so I tended to not really get to know anyone at these churches. I'd come in and hide in the crowd, and, and then I'd leave. In fact, I never joined a small group or what we call fellowship groups here at Sedaris, until I had decided to go to seminary. Can you believe that? I was, what was I, 28 years old. I had done a little bit of small group type stuff growing up, uh, but as an adult, where I could choose what to do, I, I never did it. And I did that because it's hard to hide in the crowd once the crowd gets smaller. So I share this with you to, to, to say that, that I enjoy hiding in the crowd. And what we're going to see in, in the Gospel of Mark is often reference to the crowd. And there's two words that he'll use uh, to talk about these crowds that tended to follow around this Jesus of Nazareth. And the first word, which, which you'll see in this passage, uh, is translated all. He uses that word 14 times, and then the word that you'll see later in the passage, translated crowds, in, in his entire gospel, uses it 38 times. So this idea of the crowds is an important theme to understand in the gospel according to Mark. Now, who here has heard of Brene Brown? Okay. Well, you and tens of millions of other people have, have probably heard her TED Talk that went viral, or maybe read her book, Daring Greatly, or another book. I don't actually know if Brene Brown is a Christian or not. I, I listened to her talk, maybe some of you know, and it seems to me like she must be, <laughs> uh, because the themes that she talks about are, uh, they're just rampant in the Bible. And her study, her focus, she's a researcher, uh, she's come to study and research uh, things like shame and vulnerability, and what she'd tell you is that Through her research and conversations with thousands upon thousands of individuals, what she's found is that those who live what she calls a wholehearted life are those who have found a way to escape shame. And she defines shame as this. It's the fear of disconnection, okay? It's the fear of disconnection. And now here's the interesting thing about the myth of the crowd, right? Uh, The myth of the crowd goes something like this. Uh, I want to be in a place where everybody is. I want to find the crowd and I want to be a part of it because I want to be surrounded by people. But the, uh, the sad part about that is usually when you find yourself in a big crowd, uh, even though you're surrounded by lots of people, you're connected to none. And so here's the horrible circle of shame and disconnection. Shame or the fear of shame is the fear of disconnection, which is to say that that I don't want people to truly know me because then they might not want to be associated with me and so I will be disconnected from them. But to actually be connected requires us to be vulnerable. And here's the problem with vulnerability. It often leads to shame, which is the fear of disconnection. You see the circle here? So the problem is, and and Brene Brown will talk about this, The problem is, I will just continue on this loop of fearing disconnection so that I'm not able to be vulnerable enough to actually be connected, which is shame playing itself out, which leads to disconnection, which is what I don't want. You see how it goes? The only way to break that cycle, she'll say, is to believe yourself worthy of being loved and being a part of something real. She calls that belonging. 
So, so to be worthy in your own mind is to know that you're worthy of love and belonging. This takes courage. To be vulnerable takes courage. And, and she defines courage in this way. She says courage is to tell your whole story with your whole heart. And that's very vulnerable, is it not? We must believe that we're worthy to be loved. This is, this is the train of thought. And I love what she says. She says all the people that she interviewed, all the people that, that truly live a wholehearted life, that really believed that they were worthy of being loved, so they stepped out of the fear of disconnection, out of shame, into vulnerability, which led to more life, which led to more connection. She said those people, they believed that what made them feel vulnerable, their brokenness, their imperfection, is also what made them beautiful. See, that's how they believed themselves to be worthy because their brokenness wasn't a mark against them, but a mark for them. And I, I think this is, a, this is a beautiful idea. And I, I would just put a little bit of a twist on that as we enter into this passage. I'd put a, a, I'd put a shift uh, with a gospel mentality. This is how we might say that same sentence. The people that live a wholehearted life that experience connectedness, that are able to move out of shame, the fear of disconnection, into vulnerability and connection, those people believe that what makes them feel vulnerable, their brokenness, their sin, actually makes Jesus beautiful. I'll try to show you why that is today. Because I think if you can truly believe that, that your brokenness, that your sin actually can make Jesus look beautiful, then maybe you too can step out of your fear of disconnection, your shame, and be vulnerable enough to actually have the kind of connection that God wants you to have, that Jesus wants you to have. So in Mark, we have uh, this example for us multiple times, and here in this Ch- uh, just chapter, we've got the first experience of it. And Mark, we, uh, we'll see in this passage, there is people uh, surrounding a house, filling a house, that there's no room for anyone else to come in. So the crowds were full. And, and here's the thing about crowds, they love the show. So most of these people were here to see Jesus perform miracles. They were there for the show. But you know what they weren't there for was to repent and believe which is what Jesus kept saying needed to be done. They were there for the show. I think that's often true today. I think we do this even in our churches. We enjoy hiding in the crowds because we fear this vulnerability, we fear this shame. Maybe we're there for the show, but we're not sure we really want to repent and believe in the gospel, in the good news that Jesus preached. But it's actually the repenting and the believing that activates that gospel in our life. And so we're actually missing out on the whole reason why we come to church if we just stay in the crowd. So what we'll see in this story is it'll start out with this crowd and it will, it will highlight this, this man who is broken in every way. And actually it'll highlight a group of men I mean, how rare is this, that a group of men together have extraordinary faith and they step out of the crowd, or or more actually, they step up over the crowd to come to Jesus, fully exposed, fully risking the shame of that moment. And we will be contrasted with another group of individuals. This group of individuals will stay in the crowd and they'll think thoughts and they'll speak words of criticism I want you to pay attention to this contrast because this contrast is so important to understanding the Gospel of Mark. Here we have the crowd and those in the crowd who are engaged in groupthink. So anytime you hear this said, it's true today. Well, you know, everybody says, fill in the blank, safety in numbers, and so we tend to criticize when we're part of the crowd. But Jesus always does this in the Gospel of Mark, and I think He still does this today with each and every one of us, that Jesus' plan is to separate the individual 
and ask them very, very personally, well, I know the crowd says this. I know the group, group think is this. What, what do you think? Who do you say that I am? And that is the most important question ever asked. Who do you say Jesus is? Not what the group says, but who do you say that Jesus is? So this dynamic of the crowd and the individuals highlighted here for the first time in Mark, and so I'm super excited to look at that. It might be a totally different way of looking at this really famous story of the paralytic being lowered into the roof, but I, but I think it's wonderful. And I, and I think it challenges us. So, so as we go through this whole passage, be challenged. Am I hiding in the crowds? Am I engaged in groupthink? Am I engaged in criticizing Jesus? And is He calling me out? Is He asking me to step out of the crowd and engage Him one-on-one and ask the question personally to me? What we'll see in this is that the people that do step out, Jesus always is faithful to heal both spirit and body. So, with that as sort of the backdrop, let us read Mark chapter 2, 1 to 12. The Word of God says this, And when Jesus returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that He was home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And He was preaching the Word to them. And they came, bringing to Him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near Him because the crowd, they removed the roof above Him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, He said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. And now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in His Spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed, and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never have seen anything like that. Now this passage has so much more than than probably how you heard it the first time you were taught. There are so many things going on. And the first thing that I want to point out to you is how shocking these first words of Jesus are. Uh, Because you have to picture the scene. Uh, The roof in in Israel would have have been a place uh, where you could actually go and, and sunbathe if you wanted. I don't know if they did much sunbathing back then. But you could stand on it. Uh, oftentimes you'd dry your clothes up there. Sometimes if it was a very hot day, you'd go up there just to cool off. Uh, so there were these flat roofs, and usually there was some steps or a ladder to get to the roof. And the roofs were made of, of, of uh, there's some cross beams, and, and then often uh, branches spread across and, and thatch and mud. So you could dig through the roof to expose a hole big enough to drop. So that's sort of the picture. But of course, if you're digging through uh, mud and branches and things, uh, it's quite disruptive, okay? So you can just imagine Jesus is teaching. He's teaching the Word, and the Word here is really that message that Ryan talked about two weeks ago. Uh, He's expanding on what it means that the kingdom has come near and you must repent and believe. And all of a sudden, falling from the ceiling is mud and dirt and there's banging. Uh, You can just imagine the scene. It was very distracting. And so as, as these friends dug a hole so that they might lift their par- or drop their paralytic friend into the room so that he could be close to Jesus, all eyes are turning to them. It's an incredibly vulnerable situation. Now, clearly this man had physical issues, right? Which is why he's laying on a mat 
He's being lowered through the roof. And so just, just think of the surprise and the shock when the very first words, once, once I don't know how long it's taken, probably several minutes to, to do all of this, they finally get him in there. He's sitting at the feet of Jesus, and, and everybody's expecting, because the crowd has come for the show, because Jesus has already been doing healings, so we talked about that last week, and all of a sudden, the very first thing that Jesus says is, get up and walk. That's what you'd expect, right? But that's not what he says. He says... Your sins are forgiven. Well, now, why does he say that? Now, it is true that that oftentimes the thinking went that somebody's personal sin was the cause of their physical dilemma. And and in, in many cases, it could be that way. I mean, we do know that sin is responsible for all physical ailment all disease. Generally, sin is the reason. And sometimes it might be a person's personal sin. But I don't think that's why Jesus starts here. I think actually he's purposefully trying to shock this crowd who has come for the show. And I think he's also trying to stir up controversy. Now what we have in the Gospel of Mark, we've entered into now a series of five controversies in a row that Jesus will have with sort of the religious elite of his day. And so this is the first one. And the question on the table is, who is this Jesus thinking he can forgive sin? And the reason this is a controversy is because God alone is capable and able to forgive sin. So it's blasphemous for a human being to claim the forgiveness of sin. Because see, Jesus isn't here saying, I forgive you, because Jesus didn't do anything, this man did not do anything to Jesus. And he's also not saying, I speak on behalf of God to forgive you like a priest might do. He's saying that he has the authority to forgive sin. Now let me give you some background that will help you understand why Jesus enters into these five controversies. Because we'll see here the ability to forgive sin becomes a controversy. Then next week we'll talk about how Jesus was eating with tax collectors and sinners. The next controversy is that he's got questionable piety. He he, he doesn't fast in the same way as a pietist Jew would. And then what we'll see is he'll claim to be the Lord of the Sabbath. And so in all of these controversies, one of the things Jesus is trying to do is he's trying to redefine for those who have chosen to follow him what it means that he is the Messiah. Uh, If if you've been with us, we've been talking about this most important question. Who do you say that I am? Jesus asked that. And, And the correct answer is that he is the Messiah. But part of the problem with even answering that question correctly back then, and probably for some of us today, is that, we, uh, that they had associated Messiah with one very um, slim view. They wanted their Messiah to be a political revolutionary who would overthrow the Roman government and all those fa- false dictators that had oppressed the Jewish people That's what they believed that the Messiah was coming to do. And so when Jesus comes and and, and is trying to show them that he's the Messiah, he's also trying to redefine for them what Messiah means. That this simplistic view that they had of this political Savior wasn't enough. They needed to think bigger. And And so each of these controversies, Jesus is beginning to show Yes, that he's the Messiah, but that that means so much more than the people had expected. And what, and what you find from this controversy is that Jesus is not only a human prophet, he's not only a human leader of man. Yes, he's human, fully, but that he's also God in the flesh. This is the debate that he stirs up 
by the way he approaches the paralytic. He begs the question, how can you forgive sin if only God can do that? And the answer that we'll see him come to make is that he can do it because he's both human and fully God. So if this Jesus is the Messiah and the Messiah is also God in the flesh, then here's what we must realize. And and you'll see this again and again as we watch Jesus move and act. Is that His kingdom goals go far beyond just political realignment or even moral realignment. His goals go far beyond even the nation of Israel. What He has come to do is to restore all things. And that always begins with a deep cleansing of personal and corporate sin. That's what Jesus has come to do. Now, I've said that, and some of you, this might be why you don't particularly like coming to church, hearing about sin. And I understand that. I don't really like to think about my own sin. But here's the problem. And I'm going to take a page out of Pastor Ryan's book here. Pastor Ryan likes to to come to staff meetings on Tuesday with hot takes. Really likes to press press the envelope. He calls it Hot Take Tuesdays. And uh, it just means we get real blunt here. So I'm going to take a page out of Pastor Ryan's book. Um, I'm going to get hot take here, okay? And I'm going to establish the fact that each and every person in this room, myself included, is a sinner. Many people aren't going to tell you that. Many people are going to tell you how great you are. But I'm not going to tell you that. I'm going to tell you you've got a lot of problems. Some big, some small. I'm going to tell you you're something of a mess. It's Hot Take Tuesday. And that's okay. In fact, that you have problems and that you're a mess actually makes you very, very normal. But your greatest problem is that you're a sinner. Let let me make sure you hear me say this. You are a sinner. Which means that you are at odds with your Creator. And even if you don't feel like you're at odds with Him, it doesn't really matter if you don't feel like you're at odds because you actually are. It only matters if He thinks that you're at odds with Him. And He does. (laughs) And the reason that I know all this is because I am a sinner. And I sat there this week and I tried to think of all the times that I sinned this week. Because I wanted you guys to know that I really believe this. And I started counting and on on Friday I I came up with eight (laughs) that I was conscious of. Now, it's Sunday and so I have to be honest, it's up to 11, okay? 11 times this week I was conscious of an action that I took which I knew at the time was contrary to the will of God in my life and or His design for me personally. And it was a pretty good week for me, actually. (laughs) I was actually doing pretty well this week. I'm not going to tell you what all 11 of those are. Some are of the mind, Some are of the hand. Some are of the mouth. I fall short all the time in all the ways that you could possibly fall short of the glory of God. And and to be honest, probably there's other times that I'm unconscious this week of ways in which I fell short of the glory that God has intended to show through me. 
who knows how many times. So why do I say this about myself and about you? Me saying it doesn't make you any different than you already are or make me different than I already am. Except maybe the fact that I don't have to add one more to my tally because now I'm not a liar. Whatever I did this week stands regardless of if I admit it or not. Regardless of if TMZ reports it or not. It's happened, whether publicly or in secret. I am the same person, whether or not I admit to it. So you either accept the title, or you fight the title. Sinner. I want to show you this distinction in the story. Look at the paralytic. He's lowered down into the room. He's vulnerable. He's exposed. All of his brokenness is before the people. And Jesus looks at him and forgives his sins. Now what's implicit in him forgiving his sins? He's calling him a sinner. I mean, Jesus could have said, hey, you are a sinner and I forgive you. And look at the response of the paralytic. What does it say? Look at the text. Nothing. Nothing. He accepts that yes, he's a sinner and he accepts the forgiveness that God has given him. This is what called silent acceptance. He's paralyzed. He's not deaf and he's not mute. He could have retorted. He could have started making excuses he could have said, well, why don't you heal me? He, said, he just receives it. Now look at the other characters in the story, the scribes. When they heard what Jesus said to the paralytic, and, and he hadn't even said it to them, look what they began to do. In their hearts, they began to question. They began to ask all sorts of theological questions about why Jesus could say that. And here's what's happening. These scribes are... Now, at this point, they haven't spoken. The scribes are silently deflecting. They've heard this charge that Jesus has come to forgive sins, and they begin to deflect by asking all sorts of theological questions. Well, how can he do this? Why has he done this? Those are usually the two options that we have. Now I want you to think, think back about four minutes ago when I said, you are a sinner. Which of these two things did you do? Did you silently accept or did you silently deflect? Did you say in your heart, who, who, who does this pastor think he is? Or, He's just like all the other pastors talking about sin. Or, what does he mean by sin? Or, he sins quite a bit. I wonder what's wrong with him. <laughs> That's silent deflection. Now, I've done that more times than I can even think of when somebody brought up my sin or my sinfulness. I silently deflected. Now, if that's your heart, if you're honest and you say, that's exactly what I do every time sin is brought up, I just want to say that's okay. In fact, this entire story is for you. It's not for the paralytic. He's already got the faith. He's already accepted the forgiveness. This has nothing to do with the paralytic. His faith was already there. And it's faith that saves us. This story is about the crowd. This story is about the scribes. Jesus here engages with these men who in their hearts begin to question because He loves them. Because He wants them to stop silently deflecting and He wants them to admit 
that they too are sinners in need of a Savior. That this is what God wants to do through the Messiah. That's what this whole story is about. I hope you hear that. But if you silently deflect, Jesus is silently engaging with you. Because He wants to birth in you a saving faith. That's what He's come to do. He's come for the crowd. He's come for the scribes. To draw them out of the crowd. To draw them out of their silent deflection. So that they too might come to faith. So if that's you, Jesus Jesus has this very purpose in store for you. He wants to give you a twofold faith. One, he wants to give you faith in your sinfulness. It's a weird way to say it, right? You can't see it. You can't see your sin. You can't see the stain. It's invisible. But sin is a vandalism on your being, it's a vandalism on God's good creation. And He wants to give you faith. He wants to give you eyes to see that in fact, you too have been vandalized. And then He wants to give you faith in the power of Jesus. He wants to forgive your sin. He wants to wash away the stain. He wants to restore that which has been vandalized. That's His hope. That's His greatest desire for your life. So how will Jesus do this for the scribes? Because it's the same way that he's going to do it for you. Let's take a look at the text again. He says to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Pick up with me, verse 6. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like this? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit, that they were questioning within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed, and walk? Here's what's going on. These men realize that only God can forgive sins. And, and here we're talking about a divine forgiveness. We're not talking, as I said earlier, a personal forgiveness. This man has done nothing to Jesus. So he is forgiving him in a divine sense. Now let me just tell you, uh, show you why we need forgiveness in a divine sense, not a personal sense. Uh, imagine if a president, President Trump or President Obama, were to forgive the enactor of a great evil. For instance, the Las Vegas shooting. Or in Obama's administration, Sandy Hook. What if they were to stand before the world and say, I forgive the shooter? What would you all say in your hearts? Well, that doesn't do anything. That doesn't actually forgive Anyone? I mean, I'm glad that that they're such forgiving people, but everyone knows deep down in their heart that those people are still responsible for something to someone. Right? You see what I'm saying? I think you could talk to anybody and give that example, and they would feel in their heart that true forgiveness had not happened. And they might not use these words, but what they're feeling is that only God can forgive something like that. Only God can give a divine, true forgiveness. That's what's happening here. That's what's rustling around in the minds of these people. How can this man, Jesus, who's a mere man, give this divine forgiveness? And Jesus is going to show them why he can do that. And 
And remember, he's doing this not just to win the argument, but he is very much acquainted with the smallness of these people's faith. And so in love, he's starting where they're at and he's helping to work them towards the correct answer. Okay? It's so important to remember here. This isn't just winning an argument. And so he says, which is harder? To say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and rise. Now, now here's, what, here's what we have to understand. Here's what's going on. Um, what's easier, to say your sin's forgiven or to say get up and walk? Well, they're the same. It, it, it's words spoken. It's, it's as easy to do either. But if we're talking about verifiable hardness or easiness, what's actually harder to do is to say get up and walk. Why? Because it's going to be immediately verifiable whether or not that did anything. You see what's going on? Because he could say, anybody could say your sins are forgiven and you can't really see what's happening. Now what's actually ontologically harder? Well, forgiving of sins is actually harder to do because only God can forgive sins. But what's actually verifiably harder, it's to say, get up and walk because we're going to know right now if you actually have power in your words. So that's what Jesus is saying. And then pick up the story. So he set up the logic of the argument. And then he says this, verse 10. But that you may know that the Son of Man, he's referring to himself, has authority on earth to forgive sins, he says to the paralytic, I say to you, pick up your bed and go home. And the man rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them so that all were amazed and glorified God, saying... We've never seen anything like this. You see what's happened? He has set up a test. And Jesus always passes the test. Jesus does the healing that they can see because there's no faith needed to see that miracle. So that they might have or that he might birth in them a faith that they can't see, which is the forgiveness of sin. You see, everything Jesus is doing here is is trying to birth faith in this crowd, in these scribes, because of his deep love. It takes no faith to see the man walk It takes all the faith to know that when Jesus says your sins are forgiven, that it's actually happened. In a very real sense, this is not all too different than our world today, right? We have really been uh, enticed, allured into the power and the prestige of medicine, right? And my wife's a nurse, and, and the work that she does is incredible, and the work that doctors do. I mean, it's incredible the things that we can do. The healing that human beings can do in this world is, is beyond the imagination of, of even 50 years ago. It's incredible the physical healing that human beings can enact. But the same dilemma is true. It takes no faith to have faith in medicine because we can see it working. But the kind of faith that Jesus and God wants to burthen us is a faith that cannot be verified. A faith that believes that Jesus Christ has the power to forgive sin. What is it going to take to believe that? In, the, in this story, the problem to be solved is, is not the paralysis. Just like the, the problem to be solved in our world today is not physical death. The problem to be solved and the problem that Jesus came to solve, listen close here, is actually a lack of faith. You see, sin's actually been solved. 
You thought I was going to say sin, didn't you? The problem of sin has already been solved right here on the cross. It's been taken care of. It's been healed. The problem remains that remains is our lack of faith. That's the problem that Jesus is working on here in this story, in this house, in the city of Capernaum. And it's the same problem that he's working on in this room right now. What is keeping you from faith in the power of God, the power of Jesus to forgive your sin? He wants to forgive. Just, just, just look at this here. Look at verse 10 again. Watch Jesus change the referent, okay? So he's talking to the crowd in verse 10, and he says, but that you, he's talking to the crowd, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. And then look, now he changes his referent. And he looks at the man and he says, I say to you, get up and walk. Why is that so important? Here's why that's so important. The the words of Jesus have power. But they only have power when they're spoken to you. And so we have to figure out a way to go from being in the crowd where he says, watch what I'm about to say to this man, and to be this man to whom Jesus says to us, your sins are forgiven. We've got to figure out how to get into that place. And the way that we get into that place is by being vulnerable, by admitting that we are broken. At every level, we are broken in some way, including admitting that we are sinful, that we are a sinner, that we are a rebel against God. We have to get that vulnerable. That's what this man was. But you won't do that. I guarantee you will not do that unless you know that you are loved and that you are worthy of love. So how do you know? Because that's the only thing that's going to get you to be vulnerable enough. Here's what you do. This is how you know. You look right here. And you remember that before you ever got vulnerable, you were worthy enough of love for the Son of God to hang and die on that cross. What other proof do you need? He hung and He died for you. You are worthy of love because He says you are. You are worthy of belonging because He died that you might belong. Jesus has declared you are worthy. Now you need to believe it so that you might be vulnerable enough to admit that you want Him to fix your brokenness. This is a story not about Jesus' love for the paralytic, though He loved him. But that's not what this story is about. That's obvious. This story is about Jesus' love for the crowd. He wants them to come to faith. He wants them to step out of the crowd. He wants them to get vulnerable and to admit that they need Him to save them. How are you going to answer that question? The most important question ever asked. When Jesus looks at you and says, who do you say that I am? I hope you say, You are the Son of God. Please forgive my sin. If you've seen yourself 
in this story at all, particularly if you've seen yourself as a silent deflector, if you've seen yourself as part of the crowd. I want to I just mention this very briefly because I think this is a part of the story worth mentioning. Notice that the paralytic didn't come alone. Yes, he had faith because Jesus looked at the group of five, the four friends and the paralytic, and said, because of your faith, collectively, all five of them, your sins are forgiven. If you're struggling to get out of the crowd, ask for somebody to help you. That they might carry you along so that you could come and be vulnerable at the feet of Jesus. Ask for help. And if you have come to the feet of Jesus and been vulnerable and received forgiveness from Him, look around you. Who else needs your help to get to the foot of that cross? Are you willing to sacrifice? Are you willing to be vulnerable yourself in order to bring a friend to Jesus? His desire was there, but he literally could not get there on his own. For some of your friends, that's the case. They actually want to be vulnerable and be forgiven, but they literally can't do it for whatever reason, and they need you to put them on, their, on your back and walk them all the way there. And together, you can begin tearing down whatever barriers are keeping them from Jesus, whether that's intellectual or physical or emotional or spiritual or historic, whatever it is, figure out a way to tear down whatever barriers are keeping them from seeing Jesus face to face that he might address them and say, your sins are forgiven. That's it. We have to do it. We can't do it alone. Would you pray with me? Father God, would you keep calling us out of the crowd? Would you bring friends around us to call us out of the crowd that we might actually come courageously and vulnerably before you? And when we do, find out that that's where wholehearted living happens. Out there in the open, but with Christ all around us, protecting us, forgiving us. Help us, God. Give us whatever resources we need to come out of that crowd and hear the words of your Son, you are forgiven. Make us unusually vulnerable. Help the world to see how unusual we are because we have the courage to not hide. Help us know that we're loved. Help us look to the cross. Give us courage to tell our full story with our whole heart, including our biggest problem, which is sin itself. Thank you for fixing that problem through your son Jesus on the cross, in whose name we pray. Amen.